hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me there. And then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos. Let me know what you think in the comments. Now, last week I was not here because I had a cold that knocked me out for about five days. I had thought that I was going to just read while I was sick and try and finish the book and have it all done this weekend. Didn't happen because I was just that out of it. So everything, my, my timeline got all screwy. I, I know I said last time that I would not be doing a president this month and that's holding true obviously. And next month's timeline got a little wonky so I'm readjusting my reading schedule, figuring out what else I'm going to be reading when and I will hopefully be back on track starting week after next because next week I'll be finishing this book. So we are still doing uh, working on Battle Cry of Freedom. This week's chapters will be chapters 9 through 18 by James McPherson. The accompanying cocktail will be called Dixie, which is a quarter ounce of orange juice, one tablespoon of anisette, a half ounce of dry vermouth, and one ounce of gin. So let's do this. Now at the start of the Civil War, so we left off last time where basically the Civil War had just started. The South is fired on Fort Sumter and the, the lines are drawn, right? Everybody's going, okay, this is what we're going to do and here's how we're going to do it. Now at the start of the Civil War, the South had problems, plural, a lot of them. Starting with the Upper South, very specifically the four slave-owning states that did it not secede, which were Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, and Delaware. Um, Delaware, for, for all intents and purposes, was a free state at this point. I mean, te technically, slavery was on the books as, as an allowable institution. However, 98% of the population, including the black populations, were free. More orange juice. I need more orange juice. Um, but the other states pretty much were, were for the Union. Um, they, they didn't see the need to secede. The Kentucky actually wanted to go full neutral. They were, they were going to be Switzerland and all of this and just be like, you guys duke it out. We're going to do us because Kentucky was located in such a spot where it was literally divided 50-50, where half of it was slave owning, half of it was for abolition. They just decided we'll stay out of it. And that was where they were at. They wanted to stay there until the South actually invaded. Now, ostensibly, the, the Confederacy did it to keep the North from doing so. They thought, oh, we'll get that first punch in. Uh, and that, that, that didn't work out for them because the Kentucky got all like, well, wait a minute, we're staying neutral. Why are you invading us? And so the North took that as a sign that their advances would be welcome, and they were. And so Kentucky came in on the side of the North. Now, the other problems that included were that the majority of manufacturing was done in the North. That I believe I think I covered last time. It was certainly covered in the first part of the book. This includes all munitions and weapons, all fabric and leather used for uniform. All of that was manufactured in the North. Right? The South was very agrarian. Um, farmers, for those of you who don't know what that means. So in the matter of the coming war, the North was very well positioned from a supply standpoint. Um, the majority of Southerners who showed up to fight showed up with their own arms and ammunition, which was frequently like squirrel rifles and antiques. I mean, like antiques, even by the 19th century standards, these would have been weapons that were used like during the revolution and were handed down father to son. So the, the South was in bad shape as far as that goes. What did the South have? Um, what the South had a lot of were highly capable officers. Uh, when I read the book on Polk, 
because that was when the Mexican-American War was. I think I commented during that review that the Mexican-American War was basically a who's who of Civil War military talent, and a big chunk of that talent ended up fighting for the South. Um, a lot of the officers were from the South, and so when it came to when push came to shove, they went and fought on the side of the Confederates. But along with that talent came massive egos, which added exponentially to the problems that Jefferson Davis had to face. Now, the North had egos, too, and McClellan was certainly the biggest of them. I mean, he had a massive case of Napoleon syndrome, that short man syndrome, because McClellan was not a very large man, but he was pretty sure that he was the, the, the knees, bees, bees, knees, whatever. I haven't even had anything to drink yet. I haven't had anything to drink all week because alcohol and colds just don't mix. You want to hydrate, not dehydrate with alcohol. Fix that. Add into that that not everybody in the South wanted to secede. There were actually quite a fair amount of Unionists. They just weren't the ones in power. The ones in power were the slave-owning states. The, the ones who didn't have power were the poor white trash, and they were the ones who didn't really want to secede. Why should they? The Union had never done anything to them. They didn't own slaves, so they really didn't care. This was very much, on some level, became a rich man versus a poor man's war, and the rich men are the ones who wanted to secede. This is shaking, so hold on. And in fact, because of that whole rich man versus poor man, we got West Virginia out of the Civil War. We didn't have that prior to, I think, 1862 or 3 was when, when West Virginia actually came into being. Um, and that was largely because they were like, we don't own slaves, we don't care about this, why should we secede? And so West Virginia seceded from Virginia, joined the Union, and became their own state. While the officer corps was made up of heavily experienced soldiers, the soldiers themselves were not. Um, in fact, mo and most of the officer corps had been out of the army since the Mexican-American War, which was fought in 1854 to 56? 58. 48. 1848. Sorry. So that was 12 years prior, which meant that basically the author named an entire chapter Amateurs Go to War, and it's a fair assessment. Uh, neither the North nor the South was under the command of anything resembling professional soldiers. I mean, the officer corps, yes, was highly trained, but their knowledge was 12 years out of date. The closest thing to professionalism was probably General George McClellan of the North, and he was Lincoln's biggest problem and best appointee kind of at the same time. Uh, best appointee because he was inarguably adept at organization. Uh, he pulled the Army of the Potomac together, turned them into a fighting force. On the flip side, he tended to grossly overestimate the strength of the Confederacy and was reluctant to fight. I mean, like ever. He did not want to fight. Okay, the men appreciated that, right? It's their blood that's going to be spilt, so they can appreciate an officer who's loath to spend it. But you don't win wars by sitting back on your butt. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. It might be better if I, you know, it was, it might be better. I don't know. I can taste it. It's sweet. It's not bad. Probably not my favorite thing ever. That's okay. So even when he was ordered to fight, McClellan would find reasons not to. I mean, valid reasons, but reasons not to. And there's one anecdote that's repeated in both Malice Towards None and in this book, where Lincoln showed up at McClellan's home one evening while McClellan was out, and when McClellan got home, he went straight up to bed without even acknowledging Lincoln's presence. And Lincoln said something like, that man's going to win the war for us, so he can treat me however he wants. And that's paraphrased badly, but it was something to that effect. I mean, can you imagine the absolute gall? And the president, your boss, shows up, the guy who can literally fire you at a moment's notice, shows up at your house and you just ignore him and pretend like he's not even there. 
Um, McClellan did not like Lincoln, and but he was Lincoln's biggest problem versus the South's myriad problems. Now, what was interesting to learn is that while not everyone wanted the war and the armies were certainly amateurs, the women stepped up in a big way. And this became kind of a total war fought essentially from the Mississippi East um, and Ohio South, Pennsylvania, you know, Gettysburg. This covered essentially the entire East Coast, which I don't know why this is, and this is something that I was never taught. It's just something that stuck in my head. I swear to God, I thought most of it was fought in Virginia. I don't know why, but that thought was in my head. Clearly not true. That was fought literally from Mississippi East. And he covers all of this. It's pretty interesting. But how the women stepped up is, is um, they created the medical corps, especially in the North. But primarily in the North. The, the South, they thought that um, women should be ladies, and so they didn't need to be involved with the, the care and treating, unless it was the occasional slave who was sick or, you know, the, the, the master's property, then yes, she could certainly care for them, but she shouldn't be out carousing with the hoi polloi, right? Thank God, you should, a lady should never get her hands dirty in that way. In the North, they were much more prosaic, um, and, and that's where Clara Barton is mentioned several times. She's the lady who basically helped build the American Red Cross, and she got that start through the American Civil War. And the medical corps that she helped build was phenomenally effective and brave. I mean, there were stories of men who were part of the ambulance corps who would basically just hitch a ride back to get off the front line, and the women were running in there and doing everything they could to help the men. So they were phenomenal. Um, McPherson covers all of that. And also the women were a big part in getting the camps cleaned up, which helped to slow the disease that is endemic in field armies in the 19th century. I mean, just disease was everywhere because they didn't know about cleanliness. But the women stepped in and were like, you got to keep this clean. I, I don't even think they knew what germ warfare was. They just knew that cleanliness meant you were less likely to get sick. And so they pushed it hard and did a good bit in preventing the spread of disease. Part of the South's amateur warrior problem was the fact that they didn't have long terms of enlistment. The North did. They had regular enlistments of three-year terms. The South would enlist for one year. So right around the time the soldier actually knew what he was doing, his enlistment was up. And they had a hell of a time getting soldiers to re-enlist. Uh, basically, the North was able to throw more dedicated manpower at the problem with a solid core of woman power helping medically. And the North, because of this, began to turn the tide. When the war started, both sides genuinely seemed to think that the war would be over in 90 days. Not sure why they thought that. Everybody thinks it's going to be 90 days. The South thought the Northerners would never stand for a fight. The North thought the South would realize they are outgunned and go home. Obviously, both were dead wrong. And both realized that after the first Battle of Bull Run slash Battle of Manassas, depending on which side you're looking at it from, which ended in a Confederate victory. Uh, if the South had lost, then yes, it might have been a much shorter war. But since they won, it basically confirmed in their minds the righteousness of their cause. Um... But the North, they had higher stakes because Lincoln did not want to be the man responsible for losing the Union. And so it went from a 90-day war to a four-year slog. He covers the Northern blockade at the South and what worked and didn't work about this, not least of which was England. Now, in history class, I was taught that England was all for the Union because the Union was trying to end slavery. Um, this is obviously incorrect because Lincoln's stated goal was preservation of the Union. 
And England didn't really care about preserving union. In fact, England kind of watched the beginning of the Civil War with a great deal of schadenfreude, since this desire to live free of imperial rule was America's reason for breaking with England during the Revolution. Uh, you know, so, uh, what, 80 years before? Yeah, 80 years before. So that's the reason the South gave for breaking with the North. So England, at least the nobility, thought that was pretty funny. And they actually supported the South for a time. As far as the working man in England went, they were also kind of indifferent to the war. Their main concern was ensuring that the mills had enough cotton to keep manufacturing, but even that was not strictly needed because they also had access to cotton from India, they had access to a great deal of linen, wool remained one of their largest exports because England raises sheep. And so that was part of it, but it wasn't a driving force. By and large, England was like, let's just stay out of it. It's none of our business, right? And so the question became for the nobility, do we recognize the South as a standalone nation? Because that recognition would go a long way towards the South being able to form treaties with other nations if England acknowledged, if England led the way. Now, the fabric became a problem, though, because they, they did want the cotton. Even though, even though India was a source of cotton, the United States is way closer, right? Because England, you got to go, or India, you got to go all the way around the world, basically, to get it back to you. But for southern cotton, it's just across the ocean. So that was a problem. And the South had a problem because that was basically their source of income, was those cotton. And they can't get the cotton to New England because the war. Can't, can't be shipping it to New England for, for manufacture. So they had to get it to England. And the blockade was a problem with that. And as a result of all this, England became the number one manufacturer of blockade running ships, many of which were manned by Englishmen. Anybody who says that England was totally for the North, they're lying. Or they're just being really disingenuous about the truth. Now, the South, and the blockade was effective. I mean, in the years prior to the war, like the, if you take the four years prior to the war, 20,000 ships had come through southern ports during, that same, during those four years. During the four years of the war, only 8,000 got through. So that's more than a 50% reduction in shipping, and that certainly took a toll on southern supplies. Um, but to be fair to history teachers, circa 1989 to 1995, once Lincoln pulled out the Emancipation Proclamation and did make the war about freeing the slaves, England rejected the South's bid for national recognition. So they kind of fudged the timeline, but ultimately England did reject the South because of emancipation. Now, a lot of this war, like I said, I for some reason thought it was largely fought in Virginia. I don't know why that idea stuck in my head, but it certainly did, and I've been disabused of that notion, um, which is stupid because I've certainly had heard of the Battle of Shiloh, which took place in Tennessee. I don't know why I thought Virginia, but I did. So the Union, the Battle of Shiloh, was one of the major engagements and the the union outmanned the confederacy they brought approximately 60,000 troops to the confederates 40,000 between the two sides about 20,000 were killed that's almost evenly split now that number certainly hurts the south a lot more when you consider how much they are outgunned it becomes a little more impressive and those those numbers are high that's hard to wrap your head around you think 20,000 people were killed at the battle of Shiloh right and, and that's um that's Elko, Nevada, vanishing over the course of two days. Alamo, Texas, gone over two days. That, that's the size of a small city. All right? The fighting was so bad they had to call temporary ceasefires so they could bury the dead. Jefferson Davis was liked as president so long as he was winning, but every time the South lost, the critics came out. 
Lincoln had his critics too, but he was able to more or less ignore them. Both sides suspended habeas corpus. I've mentioned that a couple of times, but Davis only did so with the approval of Congress. Lincoln did so on his own merit as wartime president, and that, um, that was overturned by the courts, but Lincoln ignored it and got away with ignoring it because of the war. The South, one of their biggest problems was money. While nominally prior to the war, it was the wealthiest regions of the country, their wealth was entirely non-liquid because it was tied up in the form of vast land holdings and slaves, neither of which are easily converted to cash, especially when you are fighting with the people who basically own the bulk of Southern debt. Yeah, that would be Northern bankers own most of the debt that the South owed. The largest form of easily available wealth was the raw cotton, which was stifled with the blockade. So the Confederacy issued bonds, which led to inflation. It didn't help that most of the planters, which was that wealthy class of the South, the ones who actually wanted the war, were in debt up to their eyeballs to those bankers in the North. And since the South disliked taxes as much as the next group of red-blooded Americans, they began printing money, which led to inflation. Because that's what printing money does. And by 1863, it took $7 to buy what a dollar had bought at the start of the war. That's inflation. Now, the North was blessed with Lincoln's pick for Secretary of Treasury, Salmon P. Chase. Chase did not have a finance background, but he was a very adept learner. And so he pushed and made successful war bonds, raising approximately $1.2 billion in revenue from the sale of war bonds. Uh, the North also issued fiat currency, but when the South issued it, they made it not legal tender. So basically, this was it was a currency that you could only redeem from the government. You couldn't use it to pay other bills. The North made it legal tender, meaning it was basically like our current dollar bills, right? You can go to the store and you can buy a pack of gum with a dollar bill, I think. I don't know how much a pack of gum currently is, but that's what you could do with it. Couldn't do it in the South. In the South, you could only redeem it against the Southern South's treasury. All of this, incidentally, contributes to some very bad things happening after the war as the South like plunges into poverty as a result. Not there yet. So far, this book has been a really solid explanation of the politics, finances, leadership, and soldiering that's been involved in the Civil War. 1862 was a pivotal year for several reasons. Uh, September 1862, Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation, and in November 1862, he replaced General McClellan with General Ulysses S. Grant. And unlike McClellan, Grant would fight. And he very much was all about taking that war to the South. And that's kind of where I've left off before I got too sick to really focus on, on what I was reading. So now that I'm better, I'm going to finish Battle Cry of Freedom over the next week, and I'll let you know how it goes. I mean, spoiler alert, the South loses, but we're going to get into that, how and why Grant is a huge part of that. We'll get into that next week. I'm going to finish my cocktail, get my edit done, and then get to reading. See you guys later. Bye.